Voices of VR podcast. Hello, my name is Ken Pai, and welcome to the Voices of VR podcast. It's a podcast about the structures and forms of immersive storytelling and the future of spatial computing. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. So this is episode number 18 of 19 of my series from If a Doc Lab 2023. Today's episode is with a virtuality documentary piece called Going Back Home, Mother VR. So I had a chance to talk to the director, Catalina Alaracon, as well as the producer, Daniela Camino. So they're based out of Chile, and they've been working with women in prisons. I'm going to read this synopsis paragraph to give you a little bit more flavor. Chilean women in prison have limited communication with their family, no visits, not even a conversation behind glass. Mothers sometimes spend years separated from their children, whom they've had to leave at home. This VR experience is the result of a project that gave a handful of these women the chance to at least have virtual contact with their loved ones. So it's an immersive documentary piece that's tracking these women as their daily lives, and then it actually took the virtual reality technologies and would train the family members of these women for how to use it. And they would record different messages that then they would deliver to these women in prison. And so there's this kind of exchange for their family members would be able to watch these immersive 360 videos of their mothers and daughters and these other women in prison. And then these women in prison got to see their children and their family and go to different places like cemeteries of relatives who have passed. And so really quite emotionally moving piece to see the impact to these women in prison who have been really exiled and separated from their families. So that's what we're coming on today's episode of the Voices of VR podcast. So this interview with Catalina and Daniela happened on Tuesday, November 14th, 2023 at Doc Lab in Amsterdam, Netherlands. So with that, let's go ahead and dive right in. I am Daniela Camino. I am producer of Going Back Home, Mother VR. And actually, I am an intrusive in this place. I come from filmmaking and also experimental uh, artwork. So I try to work with different projects and artists and creators, trying to find new languages of expression. That's kind of my motive. And I am Catalina Larcón. I'm the director of Going Back Home Mother VR, and my background is in filmmaking, but my personal exploration in art are more close to XR and transdisciplinary practices. And I am the director of Volver a Casa, which is a cultural organization that intervenes the prison system with virtual reality and film workshops. Maybe you could each give a bit more context as to your background and your journey into working with VR. So I studied film a long time ago. (laughs) And uh, I started working off as a producer and I started to travel to different film festivals and markets. And more than just seeing films, I was always very interested in the XR places of the festivals I had the chance to go to, pitching film projects. And that was around the same time that Catalina invited me to work in the Volvera Casa workshops. So for me, it was something I knew we had to do at some point. We had to make a piece that could transmit the experience we were living through the workshops. Since then, that was in 2017, when there was just like an idea of a project we could do. And now we are here after so many years, so it actually has been like really, really exciting, emotional, like not only because of we're really happy to be selected here, but also because the feedback of the people has really been in line of our purpose with this project. So it's been like a really amazing experience. And, um, well, I, I study films in the university. I'm a film director. I specialize myself in script writing, film direction and project development. And then when I realized that film wasn't enough for me, I decided to start to explore with XR creation. I love how art or multi-disciplines can actually get together in order to create new languages, new virtual territories. And that's something that I explore in my personal artistic search and yeah that brings me to VR as a tool of connection but also as an artist trying to I don't know explore these different disciplines 
Yeah, and so maybe you could give a bit more context for how you got entered into working with VR for the first time, if this is your first VR project, and you know what was the catalyst for you to actually enter into virtual reality creation? So, at least with me, it was because of all our background in filmmaking, we didn't know anything about VR, actually. It was a new world to us, and we start in 2016 doing these film workshops, and... At that time, I already had this pulsion in my body to explore territories that are invisible and, you know, push boundaries and explore with different techniques and creations and creation process. But VR wasn't on the table yet. Until we met people in prison and how they interact between them and with the outside and when we start to recognize the problems that the prison system has. And we understood how the situation like it really can change families and life could be really bad for some people and and we realized that and they actually don't have any connection with the outside of the prison because we you know we can be aware of what is happening there but when you are actually there and we talk with them and you realize how bad it can be to be there you realize it's just a system that it's so broken. Mm. So we decided to make something. And at the beginning was with just films. You know, we did film workshops. So we watch films. We do self-recording and filmmaking inside prison and everything. And then it was not enough, you know. They need to connect with the outside. And one time we did this activity with photographies, family photographies, like family portraits. So we brought to prison different portraits of their families. I mean, the Catarina contacted the families of the different people in prison. In this case, it was a workshop with women. And they sent the photos. They were like printed in a really like low resolution. And one of the women hadn't seen the people that brought her up, her grandparents in like years because she was serving a long sentence and only by seeing the print of the photo of them she got so emotional it was so impactful i was Mm -hmm. in that day and we were all like very impressed on the power of just a photography and then vr just came like uh, out of a brilliant idea catalina had like what happened if i do this it was kind of like even not even the idea of doing a vr film it was the idea of using vr for a purpose of making that connection because that woman in particular was someone that was very like tough. You knew she had been through a really rough experience in her life. So seeing her break down like that was so moving mm-hmm. that that's when Catalina kind of like the light bulb lit in her head kind of in a way. Yeah, and, and I think the process was simple now that I think about it. We start thinking about, okay, so a picture works really emotional to them and it's amazing. It's an analog like tool what's next so writing okay and pictures and like audiovisual letters and then voice messages but that wasn't enough nothing was enough and then we were start thinking that what else we can do we can take this group of people outside to see their families we cannot take the families inside prison without being searched because of the security restrictions so what can we do you know how can we actually manage to build this bridge in an i don't know simple but emotional way but at the same time you know like immersive and when that concept you know, emerge, I was like, maybe we can do VR or 360 at the beginning. Maybe we can do this. So that was 2016 in Chile. We were, I don't know, we just had like the Samsung camera, the 360 camera and the Samsung by Oculus, I think it was that day. And we didn't know anything about VR or VR recording or anything like that. So we start to choose certain tutorials in YouTube and trying to learn about how to do this workflow and what kind of cameras we need. We try a, a Ricoteta, we try a Samsung 360, and then we were like, okay, maybe this could work, but then inside prison there's no internet, so 
how the headsets are going to work. So I started to talk with different tech technicians in technology, not specific VR, just people that work in Samsung or, or post-production, you know, like in this Samsung company or, and they didn't know what to do. I was like, I wanted to do this, like record something outside, put it on a headset and then get inside. There's this security system in prison that cuts all the networks from outside. So there's not even a chance to get a modem or something like that in order to have internet. So nobody knew if it would work, you know, it was just like, we try it and it did work. So that was the way we approached the first time, you know, it was just an idea first, a sense of what we wanted to do, like a connection. And then we find this tool, which is amazing. And we have to self tell how to do it, you know, the workflow of all this process. Yeah, and what was your introduction into VR? Was it through this project or had you had any other contact points? It was all Catalina's fault. <laughs> and then also this first experience of going to film festivals and watching VR films and kind of feeling also that there was something that I didn't feel as fulfilling enough. So that kind of always made me, when we started to develop this, not to be the things I had seen that I thought were very like detached from the context they were trying to recreate. I don't know, there was something that I felt was missing in the things I had seen by chance. So yeah, it was more because I was dragged along and also like the passion for what we were doing. And then we have continued doing workshops like since then. So we've seen the impact it has had on the people we've worked with. And it's been like a hell of a ride in that way. Yeah, and then we start uh, like read a lot about, you know, the movements of VR and VR artists that are making different kind of pieces. And there's this really cool movement about decolonization of virtual reality, which is something that I think we are part of it. And, you know, it's not just technology. It's so cool how actually communities and artists can reach these problematics and I don't know, connect with this tool, which is so amazing and technologic and immersive. And, you know, it's I'm always really amazed, like watching different pieces of other artists that are more, I don't know, sensorial or technologic or even, I don't know, physical. And I think they're amazing. But to me, I get more emotional or I related more to that kind of piece that are more part of this decolonization movement, as a way of saying, that connect with their communities thanks to this tool in that kind of way, yeah. Yeah, well, I certainly want to dig more into how you think about how VR can be a decolonizing force. But before we dig into that, I wanted to take a step back and set a bit of context for this piece because it seems like you know, in the United States, the criminal justice systems and prisons often have some ability for families to visit people or to have like a way to send letters and to receive letters. And so there's this channels of communication that are open, which it seems like in Chile that is basically cut off from both ways, that there's really a exile, a social exile from both your friends and family where there isn't a lot of written communication or even being able to visit. And so maybe you could give a bit more context into that factor of the prison systems within Chile and how you were able to bridge some of those gaps of where that communication was cutting people off into this extreme exile and how you were able to help make it feel a little bit less isolated. Yeah. So I apologize myself first because this is like a really, my English is not my native language and this kind of specific thematics of themes are really, I don't know, hard <laughs> to translate, but I will do my best. So in the States, for example, every society has a different prison system. The prison was built to punish the people who is in there. So something to remember is maybe in the States, they have all the communication channels or maybe other things that make them feel a little bit better but the punishment is different because of that society in that case it's isolation for example in our case in latin america it's overcrowded places violent places so it's still a really bad environment for the people in prison you know no matter if they have the connection tools or not, that's just the start. And, and then in Latin America, especially in Chile, so the context is if you're in prison, they allow family to visit their relatives in prison. But the thing is the security 
a restriction are really tough. Sometimes you have to get naked in order to get into the prison. So most of the family doesn't want to teenagers or even babies get theirs because it's just so dehumanizing. So of course that just really put them apart from the outside. So you're isolated there because you're serving a sentence, but you're also not able to see your family because of the security restrictions are so tough that family doesn't want to be part of that process. So that's one thing. And then in Chile, all the communication with the outside are forbidden. So you're not allowed to have a cell phone, video call, moment with your family or even, I don't know, like public phones inside the prisons. So some of the prison has public phones, but you have to pay our pay phones. But it depends on the will of the authorities, like the local authorities. So most of the time are not working. For example, in Valparaiso, there's no tool, the Valparaiso's prison where we work. There's anything, they don't have anything. And it depends of the social assistant will and time to, I don't know, like use her own computer to do a, a video call, you know, a, a Zoom meeting or something like that, which is something so ridiculous, you know. It kind of depends, it's so many layers. So one of the layers is the harsh conditions of access. If you are going to for a visit, we have had heard stories about things their families have brought to them that have been torn apart by the guards. They're also the revision process is very harsh, especially for older women and children, because it's very invasive. Then there's also the fact that some of the prisons are like very far, so you have to take public transportation, and it is expensive. It takes a lot of time, so that also makes like another handicap for the visits. And then there are specific days. It's always on weekdays, so if you work, then it's also more complicated. So. It, the conditions are there, but they are difficult to approach. And it also kind of depends on, some things depend on the flexibility of the social workers. And so it's kind of like, it's on paper possible, but then on practice, mm -hmm. there's so many layers that make it difficult to like, and especially on women, because women in general are also the ones that take care of the children of the women that are in prison. So, for example, the grandmother takes care of the children. So, who are you going to leave the kids? You want to go see their daughter that's in prison. And then maybe they don't want to be seen in that way. Especially women are like very like more defensive of that, of being portrayed as like a tough and like they're okay. It's kind of different on men. We've had the experience of seeing men getting more visits from their girlfriends or their mother's parents. But it's a lot of conditions that make it kind of inaccessible. It's not that it's not possible, we know it is, but it's not easy at all. But something that is, doesn't exist is phones, you know, they don't have a cell phone inside. Cell phones are forbidden. Actually, there's a law, like a new law. If you get caught with a cell phone inside prison, they will add 12 months to five years to your sentence. So. For mothers inside prison, it's just something impossible to think. They're telling me, like, there's no possible I'm going to leave my phone out or I'm going to just not talking with my daughter every day, even though that means that it could change all my sentence. That means I'm going to serve more years here, but I'm not going to be disconnected from my family, you know. So they have to use unlegal phones from a corruption network that it was built, well, by a lot of people, authorities and, you know, yeah, it's something deeper, but I think the communication is something so important and it's a human right deal, you know. It's, yeah, it's that's the thing. It's a human... One of the things also that one of the people we've worked in prison once told us is like, we don't have the right of liberty, but our human rights and all of our other rights must be respected. So actually the rights to communication is something that is being violated to them, but there shouldn't be, they're just not able to be, walk around freely. Mm -hmm. So in some prisons we've been, there has been like a public phone, you have to pay, that's intervened yeah, by that's the, it. but that's not like that in many of the prisons there. Yeah, and I think that's the reason because PR and these workshops and especially this piece is so emotional and important, you know, it, it's like a, 
disruptive projects, you know. It's really like open a hole in the wall and see what is outside, you know. It's like break the panopticon, you know, mm. it, which is something really political in a way. But we, it, we used to say a virtual flea, but then we stopped saying that. Yeah, <laughs> because we, say we that. didn't want gendarmery to get mad at us. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. It's, it's such an important and beautiful and poetic tool, you know. Like immersion in these kind of places is so important, you know. It's, it's not just the communication itself, which is like the main core of what we do, but actually the consequences, the good consequences that virtual reality can make in people that is in isolation. Mm -hmm. For example, when you are in prison for so many years, your vision change. It gets used to colors, to patterns, to limits. So when you put a headset on and you watch a forest, a landscape with a sunset, you know, it's, it really helps them. We've been seeing so much changes on them after our experiences, our virtual reality experiences. So it, it's really moving. And at the same time, it's so logic. You know, if you're in a place where you cannot see anything, of course, if you are allowed to actually, I don't know, go to the roof and see what is outside, you will have a change of mindset. Your mental health will be better. For example, I remember this story. We work in young offender centers too. So the kids, what they do is they run away of the prison to go to the ceiling of the prison. Just to able to see the river, which is right next to the prison. They do this all the time. And the reason is because they are tired to see walls and limits. They just want to see some birds flying, you know, away and the river running there and just have this sensation of freedom. So in this case, virtual reality, it's a little bit like that, you know, it's really emotional and it's perfect for this kind of situation, for the context too, you know. So yeah, it sounds like it is possible for families to visit their relatives that are in prison, but there's all these constraints and limitations and accessibility blocks that we just detailed. And so at what point did you come across this as a story, either through your process of photography and then into VR? So how did you come across this dynamic as something that you wanted to dive into and build out both this experience, but also other institutions? Mm -hmm. So I think it's for my personal background or my personal story. I, I was born and raised in outskirts of the city, like really far from the downtown, for example. So um, I live in this really middle class neighborhood. So it's like... Right. Working middle class. Yes. Yeah, so it has yes. a lot of factories around also. Yeah, exactly. So like, it's like an industrial neighborhood, which is a mix of, I don't know, like really um, like social risk a school and uh, the trail uh, train yeah, tra the tra train trails yeah the train trails it's like these kind of places where you can actually see what real life is you know and i learned a lot from that place and i started to study in the university i studied film so i always felt privileged about it and to live doing films i think it's for privileged people and i say in a good way but it's something that we need to embrace you know so I decided to get back to the community something, you know. So I started to do workshops in this social risk school, the school where people doesn't have anything, you know. It's, and with kids. And so I started with films first, like regular film workshops. And most of the parents of these kids were in prison, you know. So that was my first approach. And then I had the opportunity to do an art residency. With, it was a multidisciplinary residency, but especially in filmmaking, with this really cool documentary NGO. So what we did there, it was like more workshops and transdisciplinary works and exploration. And then there was a prison in that territory. So I was like, maybe I could do a workshop there too. You know, I've been working in this different school. I mean, it can't be that different. And so, of course, it was really different. It was a small prison, that's important to remark, because to have the access to enter these kind of places is really difficult. So we just approached them, we told them we were artists, we wanted to do this kind of works, and, and then they just allow us, because it was uh, 54 people in prison just was living there. So we started this workshop, and just something felt right to me, you know. It was something that changed my life, you know. I realized that 
you know, that's kind of the social exploration, art exploration that it really just, I don't know, completes me. And it makes me realize that there was something there, you know, I could do something more. So then I create Volver a Casa after that, you know. So at first it was just, this is a really important place where there's a lot of problems happening, but at the same time, a lot of people who has amazing, beautiful, tough stories that it could actually build something bigger, you know. You could do something with that. Art is really transforming in a way, and, and I think in these kind of places it could be like really necessary. So I started like that, and then when I get to Valparaíso's prison, we started in San Joaquín, actually, in, in Santiago. But I think Valparaíso really moved me because it's this prison that it's outside of the city and you are able to see the sea. And it's really like poetical, but sad at the same time. It's so far of the city. You have to take, I don't know, a bus and it's just... And it's kind of like an industrial complex, yeah. like very Sovietic, big, like very old. And there's like the seagulls and the breeze of the sea but at the same time they can't see it. Most of the people that are there are from the surrounding areas. So actually I ended up living in Valparaíso after going so much, I just like wanted to stay there, but yeah. Yeah, so it's that kind of exploration and you know, when you start to get closer to communities and build, you know, just emotional bonds with people, it's just, something that you feel is so right you know why not just keep doing it and it's been six years you know now so. and in, in terms of the story we were doing workshops with men in Valparaiso so we started to develop a story around that around their dreams and then we started to do this pilot but something felt off and I guess it had to do with the fact that we were three women behind the project pushing it and at some point in the brainstorming process we won a small development fund and we decided to focus it on women present. I can't really remember why we changed it, but there was something that pushed us to say, we need to work with the women for this project. And everything kind of like started to fall into place there, like the different pieces, different stories. So in 2020, we did our uh, workshop to start to imagine and investigate the script along with different women. And then the pandemic hit, so we had to like stop for mm -hmm. two years. And then when we could go back again in 2021 or, yeah, 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 we did a workshop again, we met new people and then kind of like the story really found on its own. We found out these protagonists and we really created a very uh, profound bond with them. We're still in contact with them. Some of them are already being released from prison and we're still like in touch. Volvera Casa as an organization also remains in touch with their former students. Yeah, and I would like to add that, you know, because this project is a, co-creation it's that co-creation process we didn't write the stories I mean it's not like we did the narrative by ourselves us as artists it's the opposite like we actually make these workshops we did different activities that lead us to different problems and things that they wanted to say to the world and then we write the script with them you know it was a co-creation process a collaborative process so it was really beautiful actually you know just to be there and knowing their personal story but also what they wanted to say you know it was not just okay this is my story and we should no it was like I wanted to be record in the prison backyard because that's the place where I, I stayed they're thinking about my family so I want to be there you can put the camera right here so all the process of this project we're thinking together you know as a group and just to add a final detail on that through the workshop we did in this like script writing and development process a lot of things came up from them that I don't think they even expected to tell us because we managed to build like this small tight-knit community in this group so some of the testimonies they shared were so impactful. They were part of the script, but they also, they wanted to share them as well. So there were things like you wouldn't imagine that they were saying, or maybe they hadn't said to anyone in their lives because it opened an opportunity to like release things that were hurting for such a long time. And I, yeah, it was cathartic. And I guess the piece is so intimate and so emotional because you kind of get the sense that you're listening to something they're telling you like from very sincere in the heart. 
And that was also something we, I mean, you can't expect how people are going to react or like share. And it was really, really impactful for all of us in the group. Sometimes people shared very intimate things and we were like uh, contained amongst ourselves between the other girls and also us like teachers. Yeah, and throughout the course of this piece, you start off with doing more of a traditional profile of these women in prison, and we're kind of introduced to these different characters and introduced to the prison context, but then when it comes to what I would say is the heart of the piece and the emotional climax of the piece is when you start to almost like break the fourth wall in a sense, so you as creators are actually then in the scenes giving the protagonists of your character study of these women in prison, VR headsets to transport them and to have them visit their families. So then we're watching them in the VR experience and then we do this level of inception and then we go into the experience that they're watching. And so it's an interesting VR within VR where you're able to... to language. We love that. Yeah. When we got the first version of the script, we were like, okay, you guys watch this virtual reality experience that your family record to you right but then when we do this VR circle you know when we are in the prison with the headset that's like a really cool ritual to show too you know so we decided to put it in the film too because they teach each other how to use the headset which is awesome so we as an artist we were thinking okay but the user is gonna have a headset on and he will see someone with a headset on and then he will get into another layer of 360, you know, it would be like Inception is a really good concept because, yes, it's a little bit like that, but but I think it's what it is. And if you think about it, they're in a prison, you know, they already isolated in a place. So it's like you get into something and then into something else and it's just get deeper and deeper and deeper, which is beautiful, you know, yeah. Yeah, well, it's really quite an emotional moment in the piece just because some of these women haven't really had a chance to see some of their relatives in a specialized context for a long time and just to have them to also be transported to cemeteries of their relatives that have passed away and to really transport them into the different specialized contexts of their family in a way that allows them to take this journey that they're not able to go on. And so yeah, for each of the women protagonists that you're following, it's a very emotional and visceral experience for each of them. And then they're helping to support and hug each other. And so, yeah, I feel like it's such a emotionally moving moment in the piece. And you were saying that as you were having people see it in Chile and also here at IFA Doc Lab, that a lot of reactions of people that are also being very emotionally moved and that you've had to provide a bit of emotional support as people are coming out. So maybe you could talk about like what it's been like to screen this piece. Very emotional. <laughs> yeah, very emotional. at the same time, it, it's weird because I don't know, it's when you have, for example, when you premiere a film, you go to a, a theater, you watch the film, and then you do a Q&A and you leave. But here it's like, I feel like the responsibility to be there because some people cry, you know, and get very emotional. So. I really want to be there for them. They have questions sometimes, or they want to share their stories. So it's really heartbroken when you take off the headset and nobody's there and you're really like touched by this piece. And so I love to be around. I know I cannot be all the time there, but it's really beautiful. And when we got the news that we have our world premiere here in ITFA, which is one of the most important documentary film festivals in the world. And I was aware, I was like, okay, this is amazing. I love this, I'm so proud of us. And, but how is it going to be? How the European or international audience are going to react to this piece? Because it's Latin American, they speak Chilean language, not just the Spanish. So they speak really fast, even though they had really good subtitles. They, translator did a really good job and the programming of all the application process was really good too so you could have a really good experience but it's still different cultures so I was really expecting to know what would happen and it's been really emotional and beautiful and a lot of people share their stories, their personal stories of why they are so moved by this piece. Other one wants to know more about it. You know, we have this plinth with a book with the translation of all the letters of the installation. And the first day, a lot of people just ask us, 
where I can find more information. I want to know more about you guys. So we have to add a new text that it wasn't in the first proposal that we did to ITFA. So, you know, it's been really amazing, you know, this journey and being here and see the reaction of people. It's been really transforming in a way, yeah. Yeah, so in the film, you have done other 360 video capture of the families that are not in prison and you're showing it to the women who are in prison. And we see the women in prison watching their family. I'm wondering if you were also shooting stuff of the women in prison that then you were showing to their families. And did you think about shooting that scene as well to see what the reactions of the family was to be able to see their mothers or their daughters or you know other women that were in prison so is that something that you considered shooting or actually shot anything the meta 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 language no so i think one of the things that's important to say that we have a really strong ethics regarding what we show on the film and what we do for the workshop sense or like the human sense of why we are doing this. So there's a lot of things we shoot. For example, we did shoot with women in prison footage that the families could see so they could understand how 360 worked. Yeah, we did like a tutorial with the women yeah. in prison. So we take the 360 camera first to the prison, we put it in the middle of the room, and they teach their families how virtual reality works. So they were like walking around the camera saying, hey, so this is 360, you have to turn this way, you can turn this way, you know, it works like this. So we took that footage, which was actually really cool. We were, in a minute we were like, this could be cool to be part of the movie too. But then timing, and so there was just private, just to the families. And then as Danny said, the family can actually have they could shoot whatever they want, but some of the moments were so intimate, even though they give us the authorization to show it, we decided just not to show everything because sometimes they really open themselves. They tell secrets, they, they ask for forgiveness. It's like really emotional. So it's better just to keep it private just for the people in prison. And then we just choose these really beautiful moments for the rest of the audience, yeah. And it's also important to note that there's a lot of 360 footage from the families to all the women and men we work with in the workshops. But that's also something that we will never share. It's not for public eyes, it's for them. So when we were doing now the public thing, we were very conscious of explaining what it actually was going to be. Maybe it could from be the a, from the beginning. It could be like very abstract, like this is going to be seen in this space. And they're like, what the fuck is a film festival? Because, <laughs> you know, why would they know? So we would try to explain it very clearly also to the children. And it was up to them if they wanted to be or not, if they wanted on the film or if they wanted to make a private video for their families. We tried to be very clear and we respected all of the decisions of what they wanted to show and what not to show. And that's just because that's our work ethics. Even though it could be brilliant footage, it was like, no, that's where we draw our line. And then there's the meta, 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 which is like, then you have the finished film that you should, did they, did you have a chance to show it to the women after you've finished it? And what were some of the reactions that they had? They were the first people in the world to watch it. That was really important to us, you know, to have their feedback. And it was really funny because they really take care of her image and you know, how they look, their outfits, they're really pretentious. So at the beginning, of course, when they watch their family videos, it was really emotional. That's what's in the piece. But then when we was ready with the museum and everything, we showed to them and they were like, I don't like how I look in this scene, you know? And it's like, that's not the point, you know? <laughs> Who cares? You know, you, you look really cool, actually. Like, no, some of look incredible. Yeah, like they have this really fly outfits, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. so cool. But yeah, yeah. I missed the question. Yeah, I don't know what. Oh, no, uh, uh, what was it? Oh, just if you, just the process of showing them oh, the yeah. final film. Oh, yes, we're yes, starting yeah. to work on that now. Well, they've seen it, and some of the young offenders workshop they have already seen the piece. We also took it to the National Gendarmerie because it was important for us to get their seal of approval yeah. so we could like work freely and not because we are very respectful of the rules of the house we're in, which is their house, the Gendarmerie house. That's also part of our ethics. We know we're working in the rules, so we try to work on those limits. Yeah. But now, since the piece is, was finished like two weeks ago, like the final master copy, finally, we are now starting an impact campaign to raise awareness, and that will work on different levels. 
on policymakers, politicians, people that work in the Ministry of Justice on different levels, but also different prisons. So we want to work like on not just to change policy, which is very important to us, but also as a tool for other places and to like generate this wave of emotion that this project generates. Yeah, and something cool that we did too, um, in order to include them not just in all this creation process, but also in the distribution process. So when they watched the piece a couple weeks ago, we put a, a paper and a lot of pencils and markers and stuff, and we started to think, okay, where do you want to show this piece? They put all over the world, and you know, in this paper, and then who do you want to watch this? The president, the, the minister, minister of, of women. Just, yeah, the minister of women in Chile, the minister of justice. So, other prisons. Yeah, other prisons. So that helped us to build, you know, this formal line of distribution, which are cultural centers, museums, film festivals, art festivals. But then there's these other places that are more important to us or equally important, but really moves us. More territories and more communities and, you know, like cultural center also, but maybe they are related with the prison system and of course the government and politicians and decision makers that can help us maybe to make a change in, in order of communication policies in prison. So if that wasn't clear, we during the workshop we did that work with the girls, so we wrote down with them where they wanted the project to be seen and that was what was written in these papers and that also helped us broaden our like our minds and also understand their expectations so it's like a pressure for us now to live up to that but we're going to make our best to reach all the policymakers we can uh, we'll have all knock all the doors we can and i think we're in a good moment because we're in a maybe it's like a millennial government because our president's basically our age <laughs> and we know people that are working there and they have a, at least a, a social concept that is different than classical right or left wings than previous governments so we're in a good time to make this a tool and show it to the people that are making the decisions now yeah. so we'll see in a few years where we go <laughs> well you mentioned earlier that VR could be a decolonizing force, and I know that technology in general can be a bit of colonizing, especially when it comes to the user interfaces and only being in English sometimes. It can have this way of having this settler colonial mindset sometimes of how technology pervades, but sometimes technology can be neutral, and it's just how people use it as a tool. So I'd love to hear how you see virtual reality could be used as a tool, as a decolonizing force. Yes, when we start to learn more about virtual reality, we realize that in that time, you know, like five years, seven years ago, maybe more even, it was used by people that had the knowledge and the money to have the equipment. And even the artists used to, you know, shoot in places where technology is not available and with social issues and problems and wars. And then most of those footage is always premier exhibit showing in places where that kind of communities that are never gonna be able to approach. So we were starting to think like, this really looks like the new colonization, like a virtual colonization. You know, you, I go to your territory, I took whatever I want and then I leave and you will never know, you know, it, it felt like that. So it was really amazing to see that there was this movement or this, artists that we were working with collaborative practices and co-creation practices that did the opposite, you know. So then this concept emerged, you know, the decolonization of virtual reality emerged. And I think it's really amazing. Um, yes, I love it. And in order of using virtual reality as a tool, I think it's our project speak by itself. In this kind of places or, for example, for immigration or for people who's in hospitals or I don't know it could be a really an important tool you know just to allow to be immersed in a place where you cannot be able because of distance money I don't know you know so I think it's good when I started to go to different congress because of project something that we didn't know but when we started project CNN and other like media broadcaster media call us to say you are like the pioneer in doing these workshops in prison. Nobody else do it in the world. We weren't aware about that. 
And so we would start to go to different Congress as a case of study, you know. So I learned a lot from other colleagues. They were doing investigation about, I don't know, decolonization, but also transdisciplinary practices. Yeah, there I, I realized that, you know, virtual reality can be more than just an entertainment tool, which is most of the people think it's just for that, you know. So I think we're in a good moment. We are living in a, in a moment that it's, everything is really tense, a moment of war, of fights and everything. And I think uh, empathize with society is something so important. But at the same time, I take distance to that word because, you know, it's not the tool what makes you feel empathetic for something. It's just, it's human being, you know, what it is. The stories, personal stories. So I think it's a mix of everything. Great. And, uh, and finally, what do you each think is the ultimate potential of virtual reality and immersive storytelling and what it might be able to enable? Yeah, that's a, an interesting question because talking with different artists and some people say that virtual reality, it's, it's dying. I don't think that. Some people say that 360, it's like a vintage-like tool, which is, I'm so, like, against it. But I get it, you know, because technology moves forward so fast and everything is, like, the avant-garde is so far away from us. And I understand that 360 could be, you can have the sense that it looks like vintage, but it's like, what? So I don't know. I mean, if you ask me what is going to happen with virtual reality, I have no idea. But I think it could be a, a good tool. Even now with the MetaQuest 3, you know, that it can have mixed reality and virtual reality in a, the same world. You know, it's so cool and amazing. And, and the possibilities are just so, are multiple, you know. So I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> uh, and for me, well, I think it has been kind of silly sometimes to like this fear of people being yeah. locked in watching VR. Like, uh, I think it has to do with a lot of science fiction, not really connected to the experience of watching VR. But in general, I think immersive experience are now working with a, a sound producer in an immersive space. And it, there's something about experiencing something so profoundly um, that it kind of like um, affects you deeply. And I think there's a possibility of transformation tools and also like healing methods we can think of in multiple areas, even if it's image or sound or more like interactive experiences. But I think there's something that can be thought of more in terms of education, not only like uh, training minors to know how to work or like uh, experience of a, we heard of this experience of teaching uh, people in prison how to go buy things in a supermarket. Like, okay, that's fine. But I think we can go more profound and deeper levels and connect to our emotions differently in different layers of art through immersive experiences. And I think even in that kind of experience, if the practices are ethical, it could work. You know, I, I think virtual reality is a good tool when you do your job with good methodologies, you know. So I think it's a mix of working with the communities in a really close way and use the technology in favor of what you want to do. Okay, sir. Anything else that's left unsaid that you'd like to say to the broader immersive community? Yes, I would love our audience. Follow us on Instagram. <laughs> We're trying to grow our community. So, Volver a Casa VR, you can follow us there. And I just wanted to close saying that we're really thankful to be in IDFA right now. And we hope that if you are listening to this and you feel that maybe our project could be, I don't know, part of your festival, your community, or anything is on your mind, just reach us. We're always on Instagram, on our personal account as well. So we really want to exhibit this project in different parts of the world and communities, so yeah. Yeah, pretty much the same. And um, thank you for having us here. Yeah. Great opportunity to it talk really about nice. this. And since it has been such uh, intense for us being here and also helping out in the experience itself, helping the volunteers here because not all of them knew how to operate it. It's been really nice to get immediate feedback from people that have seen it. That's for us like the most gratifying also, yeah. to know that actually our intentions were matched by the reactions. So 
Now nah, we're just really happy to like close because it's like one of our last days here to close this with this conversation because I think it kind of like rounds up all of what has happened through all these seven years yeah. of working on this. So yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, it's been quite a journey and you have a really nice installation here of like outlines of a home with letters that are filling it out. And yeah, I saw it at the VR gallery, but it's a really nice installation here. And just a really beautiful project that includes both 360 video. There's some interactive components where you're interacting with objects and getting additional stories from that. But yeah, the heart of the story is the moment when the mothers are able to see their families and their children and be connected to them and just how emotionally moving that is. And to reflect upon this broader kind of almost like what felt like a oppressive human rights violations in terms of like disconnecting people to that degree and yeah just the way that you're able to use the technology to help build those connections and yeah just a really beautiful piece so yeah thanks again for spending the last seven years to create it and to take the time to to help unpack it today so thank you yeah thank you so much thank you so that was catalina alarcon the director of going back home mother vr as well as with the producer daniela camino so i have a number of different takeaways about this interview is that first of all you know, as I think about this piece, I really think about the emotional impact that it had to see how these virtual reality technologies could create a bridge that is connecting these women in prison to their families who they haven't been able to see or directly speak with just because of all the different either barriers of what it takes to either make some of those different prisons or it may not even be possible in some cases. And so to see the impact of the technologies to connect people who have been disconnected and really in exile in a lot of ways, and just the way that it can really create this sense of intimacy. And, and it's really quite moving and profound to see the impact that this project and this larger entity and organization that they've created to be able to facilitate some of this and how they've been able to create these bridges and hopefully be able to even show these to different politicians to maybe change some of the different policies so that it's like a little bit less of an impact of both these mothers and children to be completely separated with no opportunity to really visit. So there are some different interactive components where you kind of go around and pick up an object and the object shares a little audio narration or text that gives a little bit more context to the story. But I feel like the heart of this piece is a lot of the 360 video and just learning more about these Chilean women and their lives in prison and then seeing these moments when they're able to actually connect to their families again. And yeah, like I said, just really emotionally moving piece that I highly recommend folks check it out if you get a chance to see it. So that's all I have for today. And I just wanted to thank you for listening to the Voices of VR podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, then please do spread the word, tell your friends, and consider becoming a member of the Patreon. This is a listener supported podcast. And so I do rely upon donations from people like yourself in order to continue to bring you this coverage. So you can become a member and donate today at patreon.com slash Voices of VR. Thanks for listening.